Research that changes lives. Four simple words inspiring researchers at the University of Leeds to reshape the world. I am Professor Simone Boutenay. Since arriving at the university in 2020 as Vice-Chancellor, I've been amazed by the passion, creativity and ingenuity of the research community to make a difference. Having the opportunity to exercise choice is really you know, key to palliative care and that individualised care that supports the person in the last few months of life. We need to learn from the mistakes that we've made and we need to learn from the instances where prevention of atrocities work. I think the COVID-19 pandemic actually forced us to become a little bit more digitally literate, although I do think we still have some room to kind of continue growing. One of my priorities has been to learn more about the sheer range of research carried out by early career researchers at Leeds. They are the new generation of world changers, people working tirelessly with communities and academics around the world on finding solutions to seemingly intractable problems. Over the course of this podcast series, I will be in conversation with those researchers. Join me as our world changers describe new discoveries and approaches that will make the world a better and more equitable place to live. It's about research that changes lives. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Professor Simone Boutendijk, Vice-Chancellor of the University of Leeds. In this edition, I will be exploring whether there's sufficient diversity in terms of the communities who are asked to take part in research. I will also be asking, is enough done to build trust with groups and individuals who might see the findings of research as sensitive or controversial? Dr. Jazz Singh, Associate Professor in the School of Philosophy, Religion and History of Science at Leeds, found himself asking those questions when he decided to investigate the portrayal and realities of Sikh radicalization in Britain, a project that was part funded by the UK security services. It prompted him to rethink the way academics should engage with communities. Jazz, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Simon. Good morning. Thank you. And and you've just told me I could call you Jazz. Your your formal first name is Jazz Gifford. Jazz. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So you're a sociologist with research interests in religion and identity, although your route into academia has not been very typical, has it? Can you say a little bit more about that? Sure. So my first degree was actually computer science and accounting. It's kind of quite a standard degree for many South Asians. And I worked in, in IT for about 10 to 15 years. I started a master's at Leeds part-time while I was still working. I did very well in that. And then I got PhD funding as part of a large AHRC, ESRC, religion society program. I had to make this decision do I stay in my, in my IT life or do I make a move across to academia? And yeah, I took the plunge to start a PhD in Sikh identity, religion and youth. And I'm so happy you did because you're such a great member of our community and such a, such a wonderful role model. And I really like your, your comments on what we traditionally call hard to reach communities and basically pointing out that they don't exist. And the problem is on the institutional side, as you just said, that we fail to engage with those so-called hard to reach communities. So can you say a little bit more about that? What's actually going on and how can we, how can we balance that? How can we rectify that? I suppose it really kind of 
focused my mind during the pandemic when I saw lots of references in the media about hard to reach communities, you know, particularly around health messaging and not receiving health messaging. And this, this wasn't really the experience I'd had over the years. So, you know, when I engage with community groups during my research, they're, they're very open to understanding what research is. They're very open to understanding what I'm looking to do. And it seemed to be that I was often the first person that they'd ever engaged with from academia. I thought, is the issue with communities themselves or, or, or is the issue the fact that they've never actually been spoken to? Are they really hard to reach? Are, are they hiding away purposely or is, is the issue the fact that they're not actually being engaged with, you know, in the right way? Yeah, I think that's such an important different way of looking at it for academics and for academia as a whole. And I remember a story you once told me about where this was all brought home when you were yeah. sat in the back of a taxi driving past the university. Would you mind retelling that story? So uh, I was coming back from a meeting in London in a taxi and the taxi went up past the university and I told the taxi driver that I was a lecturer at the university. I worked there and I, you know, undertook research and he said, oh, so what goes on there? And I thought this is such a huge institution in the city, you know, it's on the top of a hill. Everyone knows about the University of Leeds. But there'll be lots of people in Leeds and beyond who don't actually know what a university does beyond it being an extension of schooling. Many people, I thought, haven't really engaged with the power of research and the fact that research can change lives. And I just thought, what's happening here? Are all of Leeds benefiting from the University of Leeds and all institutions really? And how can we try and ensure that the research we do benefits as many different groups and communities as possible? Yeah, and it's also in the questions we ask ourselves as researchers, isn't it? If we don't think about those communities when we're setting out to, to define research and to ask for grants and to write proposals, yeah. and of course, we're going to overlook them. And I, I guess you're saying researchers and academia are overlooking communities in their very research. Having worked with communities over the years and looking at how, at how research is structured, I'm not sure it's made as easy as possible. So for instance, my PhD project was funded as part of this large religion society program. And one of the things that I had to do was I, I had to find an external partner to work with, and that could be anyone. So it was up to me to engage with community groups and see who, who was interested in the, in the same sorts of questions. And there was lots of scope there. Whereas I think since then, that's actually been narrowed where the collaborators are specified already. And that already kind of narrows down the kinds of groups that universities can, can work with. Whereas before, there was a lot more scope and range to, to find community groups. Whereas now it's basically looking for partners that look like universities. And that, that, that does narrow the scope of, of, of what it means or what sorts of organizations universities can work with. Yeah. And that also narrows what we can do with the research that we're, we're carrying out. I'm just thinking as you're speaking about work that I've been doing in my research past um, around gendered innovations, women not being used as participants in research mm. and especially in medicine and how that actually really harms women, makes clinicians less able to treat them well, for instance, in heart disease. Now for many decades, the only people who were included in studies were men. So for many decades and still clinicians and the public think that heart attacks and heart disease are predominantly male diseases. It's not true. It's 50, 50 men and women, but women die because they don't recognize their symptoms. Clinicians don't treat them as well. And I guess this is the same. So I, I wonder if you can talk to me a little bit about what happens when we overlook 
parts of the population in the research we're doing that is so influential and important. Absolutely agree with what you said. And I think the issue is that you only ever get one perspective on a, on a, on a problem or, 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 or an issue. But then part of this is, is about this reaching out. How are we trying to ensure that these groups are, are even aware of the research that's taking place, especially now, I think, where previously there were fewer ways of maybe disseminating information, but with the way that the media is, and I actually research religion and media at the moment as well, with, 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 the, with the fact that the media has become so diverse, you know, I think it's easy now to miss what would have previously been, you know, kind of key announcements and key messages, because there are so many places to consume information now. Yep, absolutely. Now that's a really, really important point you're making. And then all of this that we're discussing now was made very real in a research project that you did that um, looked at the portrayal of Sikh radicalization in Britain. Can you tell me a bit more about that project and also how sensitive it was with the communities that you ended up working with? As a university academic fellow at Leeds, I was encouraged to develop my own research projects and work again with, with communities. And having looked at religious transmission during my PhD, I've always been interested in, in portrayals of minority religious communities in media and in policy. And many people were talking to me about this issue, about the way in which minority religious communities are represented, particularly Sikhs and, their, and, and the way they're often linked to extremism. And this really came to a head in, in 2015 when the Indian Prime Minister visited the UK and there were lots of headlines about a dossier that he was going to give to the British Prime Minister and, and lots of headlines in, in media, both in India and in Britain, about Sikh radicalization. There'd been very little systematic research done on this topic and lots of people I engaged with were raising concerns about this. And I thought I should do some research to at least shed some light on this topic so that both policymakers, media and the community would have something to talk about. Because these terms are quite loaded, extremism, radicalization, they're used in different contexts. It's not always clear what they mean. So it was extremely sensitive, especially given the fact that it's part funded by the security services. Yeah, exactly. And I'm, I'm wondering now too, what is your ideas of the importance of the fact that you're from the school community yourself? So I think you, you probably add more credibility than a, a white middle-class English researcher would have had. Absolutely. And I think the fact that I've done my PhD in collaboration with an organization meant that I already built up links over a good six to seven years with key stakeholders, key organizations. And I kind of understood the politics of the community as well, which was really interesting to kind of work out who the key players were. So this isn't something that I could have just come in and said, okay, I'm an academic and I'm doing you a favor by researching this project. You know, it was using the relationships I built up over the years. I mean, honestly, this was the scariest thing I've ever done because it was a contentious topic, but I felt it needed to be tackled and I felt I was best placed to do it, given that I'd already had this experience and networks going forward. Yeah. And what made it scary? Just the nature of the topic and the fact that there was suspicion around the funding. Was I working for the government? Previous to my research, these terms had been used about the community. And the community itself had very little agency to respond to the to these terms. So... I think it always been seen with suspicion and the fact that I was coming and saying, okay, look, I'm actually going to shine a light on this and see what's going on, but I'm not just going to keep it to myself. I'm going to involve you guys as much as possible. As the project progressed, it became easier, but just at the start of it, there was lots of kickback as to why are you even doing this? Why are you even normalizing these terms? Yeah. I think it's wonderful you did it and it's such an important example for a lot more of this type of research I think we need to do if we want to properly serve all of society.
Thank you for listening to this World Changers podcast from the University of Leeds. I'm Professor Simone Buitendijk and I'm in conversation with Dr. Jazz Singh to look at his work to connect with groups traditionally not involved in academic research. So can you tell me a little bit about your provisional findings and, and how controversial they were or weren't? I found that the, the terms themselves, extremism and radicalization, are used very differently, very different contexts. And the various incidents that have taken place involving Sikhs in the UK over the years have happened for very, very different reasons. I suppose the key finding is it's all about nuance and it's all about not lazily labeling particular events with these terms particularly in a post 9-11 securitization context, where these can have a really significant impact on communities locally, nationally, and internationally. It's always more complicated than you think, and that's a really important research outcome. It is, it's open access, which again was a really important, important point, just to say, because it was open access, it was used significantly by policymakers and the community and media. So I was going into meetings with policymakers and they'd actually read the report. And I think you also gave the, the people in the community an opportunity to feedback on your findings before they were actually published, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I don't really see any difference here between presenting at an academic conference where you're getting feedback from your peers and presenting to communities where a knowledge of a different kind exists. So what I thought I would do is I thought I would partner with some of the organizations I'd worked with over the years and ask them to host me in open access workshops. And what that meant was I wasn't some stranger coming in, putting on an event. I was actually doing it in collaboration with an organization who had their own audience. And, and secondly, these open access events meant that people could feed back to me. So the way I organized it was that I said, okay, we're going to organize open access events all around the country. Anybody can attend, but once you're in the room, then it's Chatham House rules, no tweeting, no Facebook, nothing that's said in the room can go out of the room. And I got this comment from them. We haven't seen this level of engagement with academia before. We haven't had a place to have difficult conversations before. And I, th I think this is a case with lots of minority communities where much of it has just, just been about survival, building institutions and just living day to day. The feedback was really positive, but that's not to say that the events themselves were easy. The events themselves were very challenging as well. Yeah, I can imagine that, but it's so important also as a way to indeed tell the community that we're doing more than just teaching and that the research that we're doing can actually benefit them. It always strikes me when I'm traveling and people at customs ask me what I do. I have work at the University of Leeds. The next question always is, what do you teach? Yeah, it's true. People never say, oh, are you a researcher? What's your line of research? Never, ever, ever. doesn't matter whether you're in the UK, US or, or Singapore or whatever country. They always ask, what do you teach? Yeah, it's fascinating. So, so how, Jess, how, how concerned were you about your own independence? Because that's something, of course, that every researcher needs. For me, these workshops were like academic conferences in the, for me, they were a way to present my findings, present what I'd found to a knowledgeable audience. And it was a case of getting feedback on my findings from the audience and also justifying my choices. I thanked people for their feedback. It made me discuss my methods in depth as well, which is always, always good. You know, it made me justify everything. So I didn't necessarily change much of what I'd presented in my draft report, but I did take on feedback in places around terminology or particularly where I had individuals in the audiences who were part of the events that I was actually discussing and describing, which was fascinating. Knowledge exists in lots of places. I think, I think it would be quite egotistical for us as academics to think that knowledge only exists in academia. So for me, it was just a place for gathering 
knowledge, but in a different context. It's really fascinating. And, and do you think your research also had more impact because you consulted before with the individuals and during and after, do you think it was easier for them to, to actually accept the findings and use them also in ways that benefited them as a community? Yeah, absolutely. So, so you know, an issue with academia is we write lots of stuff, but it's, it's not always read. Creating a buzz around your research is, is often difficult, but over what this did was my report was going to be launched in November and summer, May, June, July, and August, I'd been on this, on this roadshow. So there was a buzz created already about the findings that I hear. People were asking me, when, when can I read? When can I read? When can I read? And because I'd engaged these kind of key community groups and organizations early on, there was a buzz for when the research came out. Crest said it was one of the most downloaded reports that they'd ever had. I got um, messages from other parts of the world. It was, it was featured in the Times of India. I got invited to Canada as well. So because I'd done this groundwork and because the buzz existed amongst various key players, yeah, in terms of impact, I mean, it went way beyond my expectations. And in fact, it became an impact case study for the school because of all this buzz that had been created. I was, I was in media, I was, I was talking to policymakers and community groups as well. So it really all kind of snowballed. And how did you ensure that you got the voice of the entire Sikh community? Because I can imagine even if you're going out into the Sikh community, there's still power imbalance. There's still certain groups that are easy to step forward than others. Oh, of course. Yeah. How did you make sure that you got to cross the entire community? Yeah, so part of the value of these events was that they were all held in community venues. So they were held in places where there were large numbers of the community. And the fact that they were open access meant that, meant that I wasn't deciding who could turn up. In, in, in one meeting in, in Southall, there were people who said to me afterwards that we'd had people on, on different parts of the spectrum all in the same room together. I was quite moved by that because it was bringing all these groups together that hadn't been together before. And what's pleased me most about all this was that the fact that the, the community saw the value of open dialogue in this context. Yeah, it's so wonderful. Can you see this approach being adopted by other researchers, whether that's at the University of Leeds or wherever? It Could it be a good role model for how to do these things? I think it could. Laying the groundwork in the early stages and ensuring that you talk to the necessary people, you ensure that the research questions you're asking are relevant because the power of developing research questions with a partner as early as possible means that your findings are automatically going to be relevant when you complete your research. So there isn't the case of looking for somewhere to put your research. It's already there because you have somebody there who wants to know them the answers to these particular findings. Previously, before this project, I'd only ever fed back to the partners I was working with. But I think we often underestimate the level of interest in particular topics in wider communities. And as the university, we do so much good stuff. But I, I'm not sure we're good enough for showing what we do off to people, just, just to the wider public. You know, it, it's, it's service, isn't it, in a way? It's, it's, it's part of our role as an institution. Just, just show what we're doing. Yeah, and it's such a great example of how universities are incredibly impactful locally, mm. but also nationally. You just spoke about your national impact. And then even internationally, you can see how this can translate to the global stage. I'm also wondering then whether these are the kinds of projects that students would die to be involved in. Absolutely, Samosa. After each workshop, I was getting students either emailing me or contacting me in person saying that they were now interested in social scientific research and it wasn't something that they'd actually considered before. I'm thinking about my own journey, you know, I went into computer science and accounting because they're safe kind of migratory, you know, it's either medicine or it's law or it's business, you know, there's a kind of standard list of, of, uh, yep. <laughs> of migratory degrees that people do. And, and I don't think the arts and humanities is something that 
have often been considered by certain groups. I do often get Sikh students from all over the world emailing, emailing me about asking me for bibliographies or references or advice on dissertations or this sort of thing, which is absolutely fine because I, I also recognize my status as an academic at the University of Leeds. You know, I, I'm, I'm in a very privileged position. There aren't a lot of people liking me in these sorts of positions. So I understand my role as a, as a mentor too. And that's, and that's absolutely brilliant, I think, if I can get more people involved in these areas of research, and that's absolutely great. Yeah, no, I think it's really great. It's so true that if we don't have role models who are slightly different from the norm, people won't feel invited to even think about studying at the university, let alone the university career. I always like the saying, I wish I had invented it. You can't be what you can't see. Yeah. And it's so clear in your example. So hopefully it will also encourage students from different communities to come and study at the University of Leeds and follow your example. Because you're right, it's real poverty in a way, academic poverty that we have so few underrepresented minority groups mm. in arts and humanities and social sciences, because it's so important to have all these voices at the table and also in the classroom to make your lived experience something that's an, yeah. a positive. Not, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll teach you how to, <laughs> yeah. to behave differently. And let's go towards the end of this interview. I wish we could keep talking, which I'm well outside of the studio. And, and I'm very happy to support you in your career and make do your mentor role even, even better than you're already doing it. You're one of the world changers, this, this group of essayists, and that's why I'm interviewing you today. And, and can you see that this approach that you've pioneered could help us establish this university without walls that we want to be. Can you say a little bit about how you can inspire me and others in leadership position to, to go beyond what we're doing now? The big question is, you know, who currently feels comfortable engaging with the University of Leeds and then thinking about who's outside that? How do we ensure we're tackling the most important questions for everybody, I think is a, is a, is a key driver. And, and, and I think engaging with, with these groups will help us do that. It's easy for us as academics to think, this is an important topic of research. How do you know it is? You know, so the approaches that I've, I've pioneered and I'm, I'm hoping to build on are looking to empower everyone through education, through research, and not do things on maybe unnecessarily on our terms, but do things with other people on their turf. It's all about building a level of trust between us and other, other people from which the whole of society could benefit. I think that's an absolutely brilliant line to end this interview with. This has been fascinating, Jess. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, but of course, more importantly, for all the wonderful work you're doing for the University of Leeds, for the community, and ultimately for the world. But thanks a lot. Thanks very much, Simone. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the University of Leeds. To find out more about the work of our early career researchers and to read essays written by World Changer researchers, please go to the World Changers page on the university website. Details can be found in the information that accompanies this podcast.